the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Hello and welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Today we're speaking with Dr. Stephen Katz, who is a faculty member in Applied Psychology and Human Development at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, or OISE, of the University of Toronto, where he teaches in the Child Study and Education Graduate Program. He's the recipient of the OISE UT Wide Award for Teaching Excellence, and in addition, he's the Director of Research Evaluation and Capacity Building for the firm Aporia Consulting. Dr. Katz has a PhD in human development and applied psychology with a specialization in applied cognitive science. His areas of expertise include cognition and learning, teacher education, networked learning communities, leading professional learning, evidence-informed decision-making for school improvement, and leadership for system change. He's received the Governor General's Medal for Excellence in his field and has been involved in research and evaluation, professional development, and consulting with a host of educational organizations around the world. He's an author of several best-selling books, including Leading Schools in a Data-Rich World, Building Connecting Learning Communities, Intentional Interruption, and The Intelligent Responsive Leader. Now, if you like our interview, connect with us, Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com, follow us on Twitter at IntersectionEd, we're even on Facebook, and we really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Here's my conversation with Dr. Stephen Katz. Dr. Stephen Katz, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Thank you, Corey. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I am really excited to have you on. Uh, because I think you you talk about many of my favorite topics in education, if that can even be a thing, mm-hmm. um, and 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 offer I think um, different perspectives and 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 uh, in some cases perspectives that really are going to uh, further my knowledge and I think that our listeners' knowledge. And the first area that I really want to talk about is the relationship between student performance and teacher professional learning. Um, as I said, we talk a lot about this concept on the show, probably because I feel it's so important. But I'd like to get your take on it. When you're thinking about the relationship, student performance, teacher professional learning, how do you frame it? What do you think about when you think about this relationship? Sure. Um, so for me, the relationship is is really a, a cascade of a relationship. Um, and I, I typically like to start by thinking about what I see as the ultimate outcome, which is student learning achievement and well-being. Um, and we know from all kinds of research that the single biggest predictor of student learning achievement and well-being is the quality of the teacher practice that they encounter. 
Um, and that's even more predictive of their outcomes than some of the other contextual variables, things like socioeconomic status that many people would say are influential, and they are influential, but just not as influential and impactful as the quality of practice. Um, so the research supporting the robust nature of that link between quality practice and student outcome is very well established. So we actually have to shift the fundamental question um, and we shift it to asking how to create the conditions for high quality teacher practice. Because um, once we get high quality teacher practice, we know student learning achievement will follow. Um, that's where professional learning comes in. Um, so we're now asking the question, how do we create the conditions for high quality teacher practice, given that we know it's so impactful? Uh, professional learning is our most promising route to getting there. But the rub is that the evidence base suggests that the link between most of what we do in professional learning and its impact on sustained quality teacher practice is much more fragile. Most of what we do in the professional learning realm, when you look at the evidence, suggests that there is going to be very little sustained impact on practice and therefore quite unlikely to land the desired student outcomes. So if you think about it almost from a simple or maybe simplistic return on investment perspective, um, it's a challenge. And so that's why it's really important to get the conditions for impactful professional learning right. Yes, that is in line with most of what we know. But I think that you brought up a few elements there that, that I would like to go a little bit deeper on. So the first one that I want to go is you said that you know, our, our uh, return on our investment or our investment in professional learning to be able to create those conditions for high quality teacher practice is sometimes difficult. And, and this idea of you, you learn something or you deliver professional development or learning and then shifting practice, that learning and doing gap sometimes can be difficult to to overcome. What are some ways that you have seen to be effective? What have you seen in the research to help really translate professional learning into that higher quality teacher practice? Right. No, it's an excellent question. So um, the way I like to think about this is that most of our professional um, development efforts concentrate on what I call the supply side of the equation. So even the language we use, you know, it's about giving PD, delivering PD. Um, participants talk about the recipients of PD. It's about getting PD. Um, and we spend a lot of time on the supply side, creating resources, creating packages, creating um, sessions, all of those things, as I say, are supply conditions, um, but much more impactful in actually getting those opportunities to stick is not really when they're supply driven, but rather when they're demand driven. Um, so the evidence would suggest that the best shot we have of getting our professional learning opportunities to uh, translate into a sustained change in practice is when they are just in time job embedded and needs based. In other words, it's gotta be when you need it, where you need it, and because you need it. Those things create the conditions for demand. Once you need and want something, you will be much more likely to engage with what's on offer for you and actually do the hard work of integrating it into your practice. 
that makes sense. And it's not the first time we've heard those three terms around professional learning. One of the things that I wonder, and it's it's another aspect, and you just brought it up a little bit, is this idea or the concept of permanence. Permanence. So, you know, just in time, um, job embedded, all these kind of things. But there's sometimes an element of, you know, the school is doing this, um, this, this, this idea of you get swept up. And some of those positive practice changes or the high quality teacher practices, they're kind of ephemeral. Uh, they have a, a short amount of time. Do you think that the question of permanence is solved by the conditions you said that hold just in time and job embedded? Or is there some other conditions around permanence that we need to be aware of to make sure that this, this doesn't just have a one month kick up or a one month um, high quality teacher practice effect, but it has a long term effect. Absolutely. I mean, I think that I mean, that whole notion of, you know, just in time job embedded needs based those, those are, are really, you know, um, what the research helps us to understand is the necessary conditions to have to be in place to give it a chance. There's no guarantee that it's actually going to happen. When you actually dig a little bit more deeper into the process, um, and we're using the notion of permanence, because we really, you know, I'm I'm a cognitive psychologist by trade, and we define learning as not just an experience that um, cultivates change, but there's a high bar. The change has to be permanent. You can continue to learn and grow and move forward, but you can't go back to the way you used to think about something um, once any of the incentives or pressure or support conditions are no longer with you. So the way that, you know, we understand this concept of, of permanence to be most likely, um, and I have to kind of go a little bit backwards here to just kind of set the context, because um, learning, you know, certainly from, from the standpoint that I take it, um, thinks about the notion of the cognitive or mental systems in our head, um, and all systems, whether they're mental systems or even broader organizational, organizational systems, like to be in a state of equilibrium, right? And that state of equilibrium or balance is a space of routine, of habit, almost of like being on autopilot. Um, and if you really want to get a real change, you have to create the same feeling of equilibrium as the status quo, but you have to create it on a new plateau of understanding and practice, right? Um, now, the challenge is how do you get there? How do you get from one stable plateau of understanding and practice to a new stable plateau of understanding and practice? And the difficult part is in order to get there, you actually first have to disrupt the status quo that you currently find yourself working and practicing. And you have to, to use you know, our language, intentionally interrupt it. You have to create a sense of of dissonance or disequilibrium. And then, and this is what a lot of, of people sort of um, forget, is that once you've created the dissonance or the disequilibrium, or rather the discomfort, you have to hold it in place long enough because the system is going to want desperately to return to its previous state of equilibration, the previous state of, of comfort, which is what I've always done. And you hold the discomfort in place and you say, no, you're not getting back there. Um, it's hard and it's uncomfortable, but you have to hold it longer than you think you need to. And then once it's clear that the old way isn't an option anymore, then you're primed to engage in new learning where you can actually change what you think and do. 
And then, of course, um, just like, you know, we know with getting good at all things, you have to practice it a lot um, till it becomes uh, stable. Um, and you can continue to learn and grow and evolve, but you can't go backwards. So if you change your assessment practice and you start thinking differently, that assessment is where I always begin. I always start by saying, what do my students think and know already? You're never going to go back to thinking about assessment as the thing you only do at the end. What's important here is the takeaway, Corey, is that that uncomfortable feeling that's produced by that dissonance, it's not an unfortunate consequence of new learning. It's an essential prerequisite for new learning, um, even though it doesn't feel like it at the time. <laughs> I can imagine. Now I have a whole bunch of questions that, that came out of that. What do you say or ha have you read any of this research around new habit formation about getting people to do small changes. So, all right, so you intentionally disrupt and then you hold that dissonance. And then do you, have you seen any 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 uh, credence to this whole idea of actually making a series of smaller changes might help make that new quality teacher practice become permanent and be part of it? Or do you see, have you seen anything or there's no research that kind of supports that? No, there is. There really is. Um, and in fact, you know, we use a methodology in some of our professional learning work that's really talked about the whole notion of your next best small learning move. Um, and the idea is that when you string together cascades of multiple small learning moves, um, you're much more likely to get a big move. Um, out of that. Um, and it's for all kinds of reasons. There's very strong research between the size of the move you make, the likely you are the likely you are to monitor it, which is typically where most of our learning cycles break down. It's not so much on the plan or the act. We're kind of good at doing some planning and we're good at acting, but we're terrible at the assess and the reflect. We're learning that the smaller the loop is, so the smaller and tighter the plan, act, assess, reflect loop is, the more easier it will be to do the assess and reflect. So there's a strong correlation between the size of move and the likelihood you are, the likelihood you are to monitor it and how likely you are to monitor it, I should say. Um, and then the third ingredient is how efficacious you feel. Um, and the research supports that as well. So the smaller the move, the more likely you are to monitor it, and the more efficacious you feel around it. And those three things take to get taken together are really what supports the notion of working in small, tight learning loops and then cascading them together. So when you say the more efficacious you feel, is that just kind of are you is that a fancy way of saying you feel successful and so that continues the motivation to to continue with that change? I'm trying to, yeah, it, it is. And in fact, it, efficacy is your perception of the success. Um, but it's not just that you will feel more like you can do it. You actually will be more likely to accomplish it. I mean, you know, it's it's all of the adages that we know about, you know, all like long journeys require, you know, taking the first step and those kinds of things. Uh, long distance runners, for example, never think about the finish line. They always think about the next mile marker and set what we call proximal goals, not distal goals. And then as you approach your first proximal goal, you set another sort of far, far, farther or further proximal goal. Um, and so you string all those together and that's how you get to the finish line. Too difficult to monitor your progress in relation to something that's ultimately 
distal, which is why it's really hard to say to a grade nine student, trust me, in four years, all this is going to be worthwhile. You know, we have to help uh, we have to help students um, and adolescents um, set goals that are much more proximal to where they're currently located and not say, well, trust me, hang on, you know, you'll see this is all worth it in four years. That's way too far away. So I want to get into, there's a lot to unpack there, but I want to move into how we might support that, those conditions. And it sounds like you're talking a little bit about putting in place a progress, uh, a process where we can have those proximal goals. And there's a, there's a, there's a known type of process in a school to, to be able to facilitate kind of like habit formation tied to improvement of teacher practice. Let's get into the learning leader side of that. Where and how might a school leader support some of these concepts that you're talking about that ultimately lead to a higher quality teacher practice and ultimately better student performance in multiple different aspects? Sure. Um, so in this space, I really like to think about the whole notion of, you know, a nested model where everybody has a class. Um, most of us are typically used to thinking about the class as the group of students that are the responsibility of the teacher. Um, but um, administrators, school administrators have a class as well. It's just a class of adults. Um, you know, so we always like to think about it as student learning need will inform a teacher learning need, um, meaning that if students are struggling with something and you're doing the best you can, you really only have two options. One is to get new students, which typically isn't really an option. They sort of send you the best they have. They don't keep the good ones at home. Um, and um, and so uh, if your best efforts aren't landing in the way that you'd hoped, and those are the best kids that are available to you, the only other option is that you have to learn something new as a teacher, right? So we always say a student learning need is a good proxy for a teacher learning need. Um, but that teacher learning need in turn informs the leader learning need. Uh, we work with the definition of leadership as being about influence, right? And if you're a leader, um, an administrator or a superintendent or something like that, uh, anybody in a leadership position, either formal or informal, I should say, um, when you're thinking about influence, you need to know both the who and the what of influence. So who are you trying to influence and in relation to what? So a school leader will rarely impact student learning and achievement directly. Um, if a school leader has an impact on student learning and achievement, it's because it's mediated by teacher practice, right? They don't leapfrog over teachers. Um, so it's really the teachers who comprise the class for most school leaders. And so their work is about influencing the adults. So now I want to get into um, a little bit more of that intentional interruption uh, book. And one of the things that you mentioned in that or that you talk about is some common barriers that these school leaders need to overcome so that they can have that influence that you were talking about. Now, I don't think we need to go through all of them. I mean, obviously, this is uh, we want people to go in and, and get some more uh, information or maybe read your book. But if you were to say, what are some of the biggest barriers that you've seen that, that leaders should be conscious of and perhaps pre-plan before they go into one of these um, processes for for making change? What might you say? What are some of the biggest ones that you've seen come out that, that you might talk about in a, in a shorter amount of time? Mm -hmm. um, so 
really the, the, the way that, that I like to think about the barriers in the space is really, you know, through the language of what we call cognitive biases, right? And cognitive biases, this is not an education thing, um, although it, the manifestations are education specific, but cognitive biases are, are really the mental shortcuts that we all take to basically seems crazy. Um, but that is how they work. Um, we're quite efficient as in as human beings in our mental agility, um, but we're not really set up to do deep thinking. We're set up to make pretty quick decisions and solve problems, but most of what we're talking about here really requires that we think. And there's all kinds of mental shortcuts that get in the way of doing the thinking that I talked about earlier when I said we have to actually intentionally interrupt the status quo and hold the disturbance in place longer recalibrate on a new plateau. Uh, one of the really big ones is, is the confirmation bias, of course, and that's, you know, the propensity we all have to troll about our environments looking to confirm or affirm what we already think, believe, know, and do. So it sets itself perfectly up to perpetuate the status quo because we actually ignore things or explain away things that would be challenging and would in fact create a disruption to the status quo of our understanding. Um, one of our intentional interruption strategies, um, and it's counterintuitive, is the um, strategy of working really hard to actually recruit contradictory evidence, um, which is not something most of us will do on our own. We have to be primed or prompted to purposely go out and try to prove our existing understanding practices wrong. Uh, I like to talk about it as almost like a stress test for your ideas. Um, we need to subject our stress tests, uh, we need to subject our ideas to a stress test. Um, and often other people are really the best source for doing that. Um, another really um, high frequency, highly prevalent cognitive bias is the extent to which we all work very hard to hide our own vulnerabilities. Um, you've probably heard a fair bit before about the imposter syndrome, that little voice that we all carry around with us inside that says, don't really know how I got here, but I'm one stupid comment away from being found out as a giant fraud, and so there I better keep my mouth shut kind of thing, you know? And what that makes us do is it makes us really privatize our practice, you know? I always kind of tell a little joke of when I walk into schools and I try to see what's going on and I can't even look in the little window that's in the door because it's covered over with brown paper, you know, and the door's closed um, as if everybody's in perpetual lockdown preparation at all times. But it kind of really is about people saying, I just don't want people looking in here. Um, and you need to be able to say, I don't know publicly in order to actually get on some kind of a learning journey to truly learn and improve. And the imposter syndrome and our efforts to privatize our practice do much more to hold our existing um, beliefs, understandings, and actions in place than to change them. I love that idea, the ability to say, I don't know in public. Yeah, that... Yeah. And I, I mean, it speaks to the collective efficacy and it also talks to the psychological trust. And and those are all probably um, different aspects that we'll get into perhaps at uh, another date. <laughs> Absolutely. And in fact, you know, you'd asked me the question before about what leaders do. And one of them really impactful leadership practices is when you see a formal leader who is responsible for you, your performance and your outcomes saying, I don't know. Right. It makes it so much easier for you, for you to say, I don't know, 
when your um, when your administrator or your superintendent says, I don't know in front of you. And especially when they say it in an area where you you and everybody thinks they should say, I do know. We, we find that that really creates the conditions for the floodgates of I don't knows to unfold because what they're modeling is a vulnerability, right? And vulnerability is the ultimate precursor to relational trust that you just mentioned. And then it sounds like the the next step in that is not only is it the next step to relational trust, but it's also the next um, step uh, further down step to to being open to learning new things and to Got it. yeah yeah. Um, let's get into education or learning just a little bit more generally. I'd like to know if there's anything about learning or education that you believe is true, but when you talk about it or bring it up. People disagree with you about it. They don't believe it to be true as you do. Do you have one of those elements? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I would say it's not so much that I believe it and others don't. It's it's more that I would say that there's some places where the evidence and the science is sometimes counterintuitive, um, which is uh, fairly you know prevalent in, in, in my field of, of cognitive science and cognitive psychology. There's quite a few choices. Um, so, so one of the really big biases um, that I didn't mention earlier is called illusory superiority. And illusory superiority is basically this idea that we have that most of the things that need to be learned need to be learned by other people, but not us. We're just fine, right? And even when I say things like, you know, we all fall prey to cognitive biases, if you're sitting there saying, yeah, that's probably true of a lot of other people, but not me. You know, I'm smarter than that. That's because illusory superiority is kicking your butt at that very time. You know, uh, it's basically this idea that, you know, for some things, we kind of all think we're legends in our own mind um, and that all of the hard work needs to go on around us. But we're just fine. Um, other examples are things like I, I look a lot at um, how groups of people and, and teams behave. Uh, the bystander effect is a very popular one. Most people think collaboration is naturally a good thing. Um, you know, the more the merrier. Um, we're a, we're, we, we have lots of evidence to suggest that sometimes together is much worse than alone. Uh, the only thing bad, worse than a, than a bad idea is a bad idea in a lot of places, you know. There's no built-in quality control that comes in 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 um, in communal spaces. Um, bystander, as I mentioned before, you know, a lot of people think more hands on deck is always good. Well, it reduces accountability, individual accountability, and you know, we all know the examples of you really wouldn't rather have you know multiple onlookers if you need help because everybody's going to say someone else will do it and nobody does. So these are all the kinds of things that are out there that people found counterintuitive. And I'll actually tell you one of the other ones, and I mentioned it earlier, is that no matter how much research and data I share on the fact that quality of teacher practice is more impactful and predictive than other contextual factors like socioeconomic status, people still think that the raw material you get is the best you're going to get, and you're really not going to have much chance at adding value to that through what you do, even when they're in the profession. And that's, you can see how that might be counterintuitive, but I see that, and you're not the first person to say that to me, but it's, I, I just saw that as so powerful. The ability yeah. to actually enact change, the ability to change a life. I think that that's what a lot of teachers think. So yeah, yeah. Uh, it's probably, yes, surprising, but then when you think about it, very a hopeful message. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's right up against there with people who, and I'm sure this is something that many of your guests have spoken to you about before, 
you know, the the extent to which people, you know, don't believe that intelligence is, is malleable, right? Um, and the idea that, you know, we know, the research tells us our best experts, they're made, they're not born. Um, people still believe you come out of the womb as an expert or not, you know? You know, uh, the next thing I want to talk to you about is learning environments. And so um, when you think back to both the best learning uh, experiences that you personally have had, and then also, you know, you, you get to see a whole bunch of different learning uh, environments through your work. What do you think it is about some of that environment, some of those structural things, and perhaps some of the other uh, environmental things that are important? You know, people, places, activities. What do you think helps to make learning better? Mm -hmm. So, so I study and 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 look at the whole notion of group dynamics a lot. Um, I look at high performing teams. Um, I support all kinds of of teams that are working on being high performing. Um, and I, I would say humility is a huge thing. Um, and and it's, it's incorrect to think about humility as, as a lack of confidence, but, but it does mean really knowing your strengths and also knowing your shortcomings and then knowing how to engage with people who have strengths in areas in which you have shortcomings. Um, that's really challenging because most of us like to surround ourselves with people who are like us. Um, you know, I'm sure you've heard the proverb, birds of a feather flock together, and I'm sure you've heard the one opposites attract, right? It can't be both. Either birds of a feather flock together or opposites attract, but it can't be both. Um, in fact, when you look at what the research tells us, it's birds of a feather flock together. Most of us like to surround ourselves with people who are like us and who think like us and who tell us what we want to hear. Um, that's challenging in the learning space. And what we find is present in the most high performing and impactful learning teams and performance teams is that they are not made up of clones of one another, um, but they really compensate for one another's shortcomings um, in places where some people have skills and strengths that others don't. Um, and you have to be vulnerable in order for that to be an option for you because if you aren't vulnerable, you're going to be risk averse. And if you're not willing to take responsible risks, you're not going to be able to learn and grow. Um, but the good thing, as I mentioned um, a couple questions ago, um, that vulnerability is actually a precursor to trust. A lot of people think trust precedes vulnerability, but that's not what the evidence says. Vulnerability comes before trust. I saw a, um, it's, it's really interesting because I've been reading a lot of research on and, and listening to a lot of research on that group dynamics. And, and yeah, that's exactly uh, something that I have made a, a little bit of learning myself around is, you know, the best way to create trust is to share and share something that, that is, could be seen as vulnerable or, you know, how, how is, instead of asking, um, people to to go out, just do that yourself start off by sharing something and making yourself vulnerable and then you'll probably get others who reciprocate you got it absolutely yeah. um now when i think uh sorry when when you think about some of your different failures and successes um, are there any that kind of stick out as maybe a favorite? And I know that's a funny idea to think about a favorite failure, but something where you have lived an experience and made some decisions, but it really informs how you go about doing your business from then and you reflect on that often. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a good question. Um, 
So I guess one that I'll that I'll share with you, um, and it, it's one that actually we speak about a lot now. But when I learned the lesson, we didn't, um, and that's the relationship between intention and impact. Um, I remember teaching a class. Um, it was many years ago. Um, I remember saying something that was taken as being potentially offensive by a student. Um, the student came up to me afterwards bravely and said, um, "You." Know, Professor Katz, I just want to let you know that um, I took exception to whatever it was that I had said at the time. Um, and I was very contrite in my apology. And then I explained that that was not my intention. Um, and I was of the understanding that absolving myself of responsibility was uh, as simple as clarifying my intention. And my intention was not to offend at all. Um, and I didn't even attempt to justify why what I had said, what I had said. And um, But it was I, an opportunity to, to clarify my intention. And then I thought I'd say, I didn't mean it that way. This is what I meant instead. And she would say, that's okay. But she didn't say that's okay. <laughs> she proceeded to explain to me that in for her intention isn't the same as impact and clarifying the intention doesn't negate the impact. So um, she appreciated the apology and the apology can stand for the apology of how something landed for her, but I still own that. Um, and, and simply clarifying my intention um, wasn't enough and wouldn't be enough and should never be enough to, to negate an impact. Um, and as I've started to do much more work in equity spaces um, over over the last um, few years, um, the more that lesson has really, really, really helped me. Um, so I can clarify my intention, um, and it's very, very helpful, um, but it doesn't negate impact. And part of being able to 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 understand somebody and to form the right kind of relationships is to understand that those things aren't the same and to understand impact and apologize for impact and recognize that clarity of intention doesn't negate that. So I really like that and I get that. Do you have any form, not formulas, because I don't want you to think that this is formulaic or anything like that. I mean, but if you are, what kind of things do you say when you're addressing the impact and not just your intention? So is it speaking to the empathy about the other person's feelings or what kind of things might go in or what might the differences between a uh, 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 clarification of intention and then acknowledgement of impact? Oh, oh, like, honestly, I literally say it that explicitly. Like what I, what I now say is that I'm, I'm really, really sorry um, that this is how you feel. Let me explain to you what my thinking was behind it but in no way do I think it negates how you feel and that you shouldn't be entitled to feeling like that. And I'm sorry for it. So, so I actually, I actually provide and I actually explicate and provide the actual lesson about the relationship between intention and impact. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. That's exactly what I was looking for. Yeah. yeah I, don't just, even, I don't leave it to an inference. Yeah. I, actually, <laughs> I actually say it like that. Exactly like that. Yeah. Do you have um, a favorite app or a favorite website that you're using right now or that you really enjoy? So uh, that's a great question. And there's so many ways you could answer it in terms of, you know, apps that make your life easier, you know, like ways in traffic, um, really because 
GPS is useless without traffic updates and where I live, right? Um, but 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 actually, um, the one I, I would probably want to share more than that is is it goes back to the notion of, of vulnerability that we talked about before. Um, and it's not so much Twitter as an app, which you know I can take or leave. I'll be honest with you. Um, but I do like some of the movements that are available. And one of my favorites on Twitter over the years has been the one um, called um, hashtag Observe Me. Um, and it really got some amazing traction um, as a way of interrupting that whole bias around hiding vulnerability, where teachers were posting signs on the outside of their classroom doors, um, where they were saying things like, come in and watch what I am working on, and they would actually fill it in. So they'd say, come, on, come in and watch how I differentiate instruction for you know, my learners, and then they would tag it, hashtag observe me, um, and take a picture of the door, right, um, and post that. And, and what it really did was it was really a whole movement around vulnerability and deprivatizing practice um, as, they as they actually um, created signs and posted them on their classroom doors saying, come in, watch me, this is what I'm working on, ask me about it, hashtag observe me. And I love that. I also like that one of the things that I was expecting you to say, oh, come in and watch me do all the things that I do amazingly well. What I like about what you just said, and I think that this is probably why you chose it, is that they're also choosing for people to come in to observe them working on things, things that they are strategies or practices that they have not 100% refined yet. Oh, absolutely. It was, in fact, watch, come and watch me and ask me about what I am working on intentionally, not at what I'm already good at. You're absolutely right. That's what was so powerful about it, right? And then, as we know, in those kinds of, of, of social movements, it only takes a few people within a community to say, here's what I'm working on because I don't know. And the growth mindset work has told us, you know, that you don't say I can't. You say I can't do it yet, right? You add the yet to the end um, because it basically says, but it's something I'm working on. And what this did it was great was it created community around common professional learning foci. Uh, now, I'll put a caveat. You can't choose your own, which most people oh. don't anyway. But do you have a book <laughs> that you um, are appreciating right now, either uh, yourself or one that you are recommending to others to read? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would never choose any of my own, you should know. Um, but what I, what I will say is, um, and, and it, it really, I, I coach a lot of leaders um, in my work, and um, one of the books that I'm using a lot, and, and I find I'm, I'm referring to a lot and I'm referring to others, um, is the book called Thanks for the Feedback. Um, and what I love about the book, Thanks for the Feedback, is that most people think about feedback as something that you give. Um, and this book basically says we shouldn't be waiting around for people to push feedback towards us. We should actually learn how to pull feedback from other people. Um, and we should pull the feedback that we need from other people. Um, and, you know, it explains that for most of us, um, you know, if we get feedback that we don't like, we blame the person who's giving it to us. Um, and if we give feedback and someone doesn't take it well, we blame the recipient, right? Uh, this one, this, this whole notion talks about this concept of, as I said before, pulling feedback, which is that this is really not about giving feedback. Um, this is really about how to receive feedback well. 
Um, and I think it's, it's transformative from my perspective in that framing. Excellent. I will definitely look at that. Do you have something that you do either most days or every day that helps you to be well and healthy? Well, uh, I guess it, it wouldn't be an everyday thing, but I, but I do I do run uh, several times a week, um, and and again I'm I'm very uh, informed by by what the evidence tells us about the relationship between you know cardiovascular fitness and mental acuity. There's a really strong relationship between body health and brain health, and so I, I buy into that. Um, if you're looking for something that I do every single day, it'd probably be my evening scotch, but I don't think I that falls under the well and healthy um, phraseology, but maybe it does for some people. I've convinced myself it does for me, so let's put it that way. It's uh, perhaps fall into the mindful uh, tasting, right? It's your, uh, your moment that's, of mindfulness. That's what I'm doing. I'm noticing and naming things, exactly. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> How about a person or an organization who is really inspiring you? You know, I would have answered that question differently pre-COVID, probably, but, but you know, I find myself, and maybe I'll just co-opt the question to answer it this way a little bit. Um, so in psychology, you know, one of the phenomena that's really interesting to me is this thing that we call moral elevation. You know, moral elevation is that really kind of warm feeling you get when you see people around you doing really amazing things. Um, it's that contagious feel that you get, you know, when other people and you're inspired to do better in your life because of what you see around you. Um, I'm seeing all kinds of examples of that during the COVID context that we're in right now. Um, when you hear those stories of what teachers are doing to support their students from dropping stuff off at their house to teaching them on a whiteboard through a window um, to sending them personal video messages translating things for um, families who don't speak the language. Um, I'm so unbelievably inspired by what I see around me. And my personal strategy right now is that I am working as hard to pay attention to those examples as I am to the doom and gloom examples that are always the lead stories on the news. Great tip. And they are really inspiring. I agree. So that's been um, a glimmer of hope and uh, of good news in, in this. Absolutely. Um, I'm interested to know what's next for you. What are some of the things that you're working on, whether they be projects or books? Um, what can we kind of look forward to? Um, so right now I'm, I'm very... Um... I'm very focused on this notion of quality implementation, right? And, and quality implementation is really this idea where um, it kind of connects back to what you said before about, you know, impactful professional learning. And, and, I, and I talked to you about the importance of, of being demand driven, like the needing and wanting something. You know, we have so many really good ideas. We, we know what to do. Um, we have all kinds of resources to support it. The question really is how do you get it, these things implemented with fidelity, which is what we call quality implementation. I mean, evidence-based practice only matters if you can really implement it well. Um, so we've actually just released a new book a few months ago called Quality Implementation. It's myself and um, Jenny Donahue, who I think you know. I think she's been a guest of yours at you some bet. point. Yeah, we've uh, had her on the show. Yeah, so uh, so Jenny and I uh, have just recently released this book called Quality Implementation, and and as I mentioned, it's it really focuses on this idea of linking um, evidence-based practice 
with collective efficacy, right? Um, so how is it that collective efficacy can help us implement the things that we know in evidence-based practice with a high degree of fidelity so that the promise of those things can actually deliver when it comes to practice? That's uh, And that's really interesting, and that's why I was so excited to have you on, because I go back to our very first interview that we had on this show, and it was uh, with uh, Dr. Ryan Dunn out of Australia, and he really talked about that same concept. We, we, we know a lot. It's not the what's. We have all these strategies. There's very few strategies that are that have come out in the last 10 years that are groundbreaking for education. It's really about the what. Or sorry, it's really about the how. It's how do we actually put in place and make use of these highly um, efficient and impactful strategies in the context of um, a shifting and complex environment that is schools. You got it. Absolutely. That's where all the work is, which is why I say it's much more on the demand side than the supply side. Like I'm not I really don't think that we need to churn out like another like eight, you know, 800 monographs. Um, because the bottom line is we should work really hard on getting the ones we already have to work, you know, to, to, to take effect, to work, to get implemented with fidelity and to be executed strategically. Well, I, uh, I applaud you on that work. I think it is some of the most important work there is to do in education. And I just can't thank you enough. Let's say people are looking to connect with you and follow along with your work. What are some of the best ways that they can, can get access to your work or see what you're working on? Um, I, so all of my books kind of string together. You typically will find that they follow on from one another as we learn more. And as I feel like we're at a place where we've got something else we, we want to say, um, it tends to evolve into to a new book. Um, in terms of contacting me directly, um, I am a faculty member at uh, the Ontario Institute for Studies Education at the University of Toronto. Um, I'm listed there. I'm in the directory. My email is there. It's available, and I'm welcome. And I'm absolutely welcome hearing from from any of your listeners who want to connect. Well, that yeah, thank you so much. Uh... Can't thank you enough again, Stephen. Uh, I have really appreciated this. I have made some notes already, and I know I'll be going back to reflect. And I, uh, I can't wait to uh, hopefully down the road connect again. So thank you so much. Sounds great. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intersection Education Podcast. Before you go, I'd like to recognize that the land where this interview took place is a sacred place that has a long history of human existence. This land has helped people like the Cree, Salto, Nisitapi or Blackfoot, Métis, and Nakota Sioux live well for thousands of years. Let us continue to live well and respect this land.